This is Berenson Bond Podcast, episode 48, with your host, Corey Berenson. No Diego. This is an adults-only podcast. I have some thoughts that I wanted to share. But first, I'd like to share a handful of incidences in history, which definitely have more books written about them in much greater detail. I'm only highlighting a few, and we'll just get into it. I wasn't sure exactly how to begin this, so I'll just begin. 1921, Black Wall Street. In 1921, Tulsa, Oklahoma's Greenwood District, known as Black Wall Street, was one of the most prosperous African-American communities in the United States. But on May 31 of that year, the Tulsa Tribune reported that a black man, Dick Rowland, attempted to rape a white woman, Sarah Page. Whites in the area refused to wait for the investigative process to play out, sparking two days of unprecedented racial violence. 35 city blocks went up in flames. 300 people died and 800 were injured. Defense of white female virtue was the expressed motivation for the collective racial violence. Accounts vary on what happened between Paige and Roland in the elevator of the Drexel building. Yet as a result of the Tulsa Tribune's racially inflammatory report, black and white armed mobs arrived at the courthouse. Fights broke out, shots were fired. Since the blacks were outnumbered, they headed back to Greenwood. But the enraged whites were not far behind, looting and burning businesses and homes along the way. 9,000 people became homeless. Josie Pickens writes in Ebony, This modern, majestic, sophisticated, and unapologetically black community boasted of banks, hotels, cafes, clothiers, movie theaters, and contemporary homes. Not to mention luxuries such as indoor plumbing and a remarkable school system that superiorly educated black children. Undoubtedly less fortunate white neighbors resented their upper-class lifestyle. The creation of this powerful black community known as Black Wall Street was intentional. In 1906, O.W. Gurley, a wealthy African-American from Arkansas, moved to Tulsa and purchased over 40 acres of land that he made sure was only sold to other African Americans. Their economic status, however, could not save them from the racial hostility of their day. Hannibal Johnson, the author of Black Wall Street, From Riot to Renaissance in Tulsa's historic Greenwood District, explains that neither the survivors nor their families ever received the reparations suggested by the Tulsa Race Riot Commission. In another book, The Tulsa Race Riot of 1921, Toward an Integrative Theory of Collective Violence, the sociologist Chris Messer explores the underlying causes of the massacre. As a result of mass migrations to the area, driven in part by increased job opportunities, Tulsa became the city with the most African Americans in the state. With the boom in the black population and their demands for equality, perceptions of discrimination and shared experience among African Americans 
allowed for little time for adaptation among whites. Tulsa's rapid change in racial demographics made the city ripe for a riot motivated by white animosity against black economic progress. Whites of the era equated improvements in wages and working conditions as communistic threats. In essence, whites were resentful that blacks no longer passively accepted second-class citizenship in their own homeland. Another structural factor that played a vital role in the Tulsa race riot was segregation. Ironically, black businesses benefited from self-sufficiency, which held both benefits and drawbacks for entrepreneurship. Through maintenance of the legal separation of race and sociality, business education and residential areas, the structure of segregation encouraged initiative but also placed parameters by restricting African-American opportunities, MESA rights. In other words, since it was against the law for blacks to shop at white-owned stores, black businesses flourished. However, even though black businesses profited from how segregation reduced competition, it also limited their mobility and opportunities to achieve outside their community. According to Messer, the police force also contributed to the riot. Due to their ineffective leadership, they allowed mobs to gather at the courthouse for hours before seeking additional assistance. Furthermore, they actively participated in the riot by deputizing whites without discretion, arming them with guns to multiply the police force overnight. The police disregarded due process, arresting blacks and interning them in detention camps. Meanwhile, no whites were arrested during the riot. Both politicians and the media falsely framed the Tulsa riot as an uprising started by lawless blacks. African Americans in the district were labeled bad. People who drank booze, took dope, and ran around with guns. Perhaps as a result of government officials stereotyping rhetoric and the media's biased reporting, whites and blacks interpreted the racial violence differently. This sounds very familiar with our current presidency. Generally, white politicians and residents perceive the black community as predisposed to crime and in need of social, uh, social control, Messer explains. In other words, due to assumptions of black criminality, whites justified deadly violence on Black Wall Street because they needed to be subjugated. The Tulsa World newspaper inflamed the tensions between blacks and whites by suggesting that the Ku Klux Klan could restore order in the community. Since the KKK asserted white superiority with terrorist acts, such as lynchings, the mere suggestion from a mainstream newspaper that the KKK could should intervene demonstrates how white supremacy was not only legitimized, but also promoted with legal impunity. In the early 1900s, there was a rise in black nationalist organizations that refused to cower in the face of KKK violence or submit to societal subordination. Whites responded to black pride and demands for equality with social control, including segregation and more lynchings. In mass media and governmental framing of riots, the case of Tulsa 1921, Messer and his colleague Patricia Bell offer 
further detail about how the media framed the riot, igniting tensions, in essence, blacks' desire for socioeconomic progress and assertion of their rights was seen as a grave threat. Portraying all blacks as criminals served the black inferiority narrative, maintained Jim Crow segregation, and promoted the violent enforcement of racist ideology. The massacre of Black Wall Street primarily occurred due to whites' generalized perception that African Americans were quote-unquote out of line and needed to be put back in their place. The destruction of this successful African American community was no accident. Messer asserts that the destruction of the community was rationalized as a necessary and natural response to put them back in their place. Evidently, Private industry and the state stood to benefit economically from the destruction. Two days after the riot, the mayor wasted no time in establishing the Reconstruction Committee to redesign the Greenwood District for industrial purposes. Blacks were offered below market value for their property. White men, who offered almost any price for the property, were perceived survivors who are desperate and destitute. In essence, African Americans posed a geographical problem because their community was situated in an ideal location for business expansion. The government and private industry worked in concert to bring down land prices and maintain white dominance in the Tulsa area. Poor whites' resentment of successful land-owning blacks allowed elite whites to use them as pawns to obtain more land, wealth, and prosperity. Judging by the legal impunity granted to whites by law enforcement, the state endorsed and, in fact, supported the Tulsa riot for self-serving capitalistic gains. Historically, American capitalism has thrived with an elite few maintaining power and wealth. When blacks gain a strong foothold in a community or industry, they have a power to affect meaningful change. Thus, the socio-economic progress of African Americans on Black Wall Street threatened the power structure of white-dominated American capitalism. When white people destroyed black business establishments and homes, the facade of white superiority was maintained. By the 1940s, the Greenwood District was rebuilt, but due to integration during the Civil Rights era, never regained as much prominence. The fate of Black Wall Street illustrates that as long as power remains in the hands of the elite, many white families, America's socioeconomic system can be marshaled to support and advance the tenets of white supremacy. Regardless of the progress made by prominent African Americans, American capitalism is structured to keep a white segment of society ahead of the remaining marginalized many. Nineteen sixty-three. On September fifteenth, nineteen sixty-three, there was the Sixteenth Street Baptist Church bombing. This was an act of white supremacist terrorism, which occurred at the African American Sixteenth Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, on a Sunday. Four members of a local KKK chapter planted at least 15 sticks of dynamite attached to a timing device beneath the steps located on the east side of the church. 
It was described by Martin Luther King Jr. as one of the most vicious and tragic crimes ever perpetuated against humanity. The explosion at the church killed four young girls. Addie Mae Collins, 14. Cynthia Wesley, 14. Carol Robertson, 14. And Carol Denise McNair, 11. It also injured 22 other people. Although the FBI had concluded in 1965 that the bombing had been committed by four known Klansmen, no prosecutions were conducted until 1977, 14 years later. That is when Robert Shambliss was tried and convicted of the first-degree murder of the victims, of one of the victims, Carol McNair. The 16th Street Baptist Church bombing marked as a turning point in the United States during the Civil Rights Movement and contributed to support for passage by Congress of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That brings us to 1960. Moses Powell. Dr. Moses Powell, also known as Master Musa Muhammad, was an American pioneer of martial arts in the United States. One of the first black men to instruct the DEA, FBI, and the Secret Service in martial arts, he was the founder of the Snukasru Jiu-Jitsu system. This was in Harlem, New York, where he met his martial arts teacher, a tiny man who's about my size, which is good to know. His name is Florendo Visitacion, also known as Professor V. In 1968, after having presented the newly evolved system to his teacher and receiving his teacher's permission, he renamed his fighting system of self-defense and jiu-jitsu, Sunukas Ru. In 1969, a documentary was made about Moses Powell and his new system. You can find that on YouTube. It's called Sanukas, S-A-N-U-K-U-S. The system, Sanukas, is spelled S-A-N-U-C-E-S. With the coming of the early 70s, he began to travel and introduce this revolutionized version of jiu-jitsu to the people of Jamaica, Trinidad, Bermuda, Panama, Puerto Rico, and the Bahamas. In 1971, Moses became the first martial artist invited to perform at the United Nations, and in 1973, the Benin Empire of West Africa awarded him an international award for his community work and efforts throughout the world. It was in New York City at the Felt Forum in Madison Square Garden before a sold-out audience of 20,000 that Moses Powell performed his now-famous, world-famous, one-finger rollout. In 1975, he performed again at the Aaron Banks Oriental World of Self-Defense and was also featured in a full-length documentary called The Warrior Within. In 1977, he was inducted into the World Martial Arts Hall of Fame. One of his many students branched off to create a Temiru Jiu-Jitsu, and one of those students 
was my personal teacher, who also branched off and created his own system, American Old School Jiu-Jitsu, and his name is Shandai Vincesiri. Now, you might be thinking, why does this have anything to do with anything you ask? I trained in a form, this is me talking, I trained in a form of martial arts that was created and spread by a powerful black man during the height of civil and racial unrest. Sanukas Rayu patches to this day have the phrase street survival because it was empowering black men at the time to protect themselves from the flagrant police brutality and violence in New York. I have that patch. It sits on my jujitsu gi on which is stitched an image of Dr. Powell doing the famous one finger roll. Above that is the American old school jujitsu patch. During my eight or so years of training, I was well aware of the lineage of the art I was training in, and I did not forget its importance. Even to this day, Sunukas is primarily a black martial art, although it has spread its influence naturally to all people. Young black men in the late 60s and early 70s got to see a powerhouse of a man with a wealth of martial arts skill and ability, which I would assume gave them an unbelievable sense of pride that was much needed at the time. That brings us to 1966. Huey P. Newton. Otherwise known as Huey Percy Newton. I'm going to read just straight from Wiki. Okay. We know Huey P. Huey Newton is a revolutionary who, along with Bobby Seale, co-founded the Black Panther Party which was from 1966 to 1982. Together, they created a 10-point program which laid out guidelines for how the African-American community could, could achieve liberation. In the 60s, under Noon's leadership, the party founded over 60 community support programs. They were renamed survival programs in 1971, including food banks, medical clinics, HIV support groups, sickle cell anemia test, prison busing for families of inmates, legal advice seminars, clothing banks, housing cooperatives, and their own ambulance service. The most famous of these programs was the Free Breakfast for Children program, which fed thousands of impoverished children during the early 70s. He also co-founded the Black Panther newspaper service, which became one of America's most widely distributed African-American papers. He was known for being an advocate of self-defense, LGBT rights, gender equality, Palestinian statehood, and for support of Chinese, Vietnamese, and Korean communism. He was born in Monroe, Louisiana in 1942 during World War II. His parents named him after Huey Long, the governor of Louisiana. The city of Monroe is located in the, I hope I say this right, the Wauchita Parish, which had a history of violence against blacks since Reconstruction. 
According to a 2015 report by the Equal Justice Institute, from 1877 to 1950, a total of 37 black people were documented as lynched in that parish. Most murders had taken place around the turn of the 20th century. This was the fifth highest total of lynching in any county in the South. As a response to the violence, the Newton family migrated to Oakland, participating in the second wave of the Great Migration of Blacks out of the South. The Newton family was close-knit, but quite poor. They moved often uh, around the Bay Area. Despite it, Newton said he never went without food and shelter, and he was arrested as a teenager for several different offenses. And he says that growing up in Oakland, growing up in Oakland, he stated that he was made to feel ashamed of being black. In his autobiography, Revolutionary Suicide, he wrote, During those long years in Oakland public schools, I did not have one teacher who taught me anything relevant to my own life or experience. Not one instructor ever awoke in me a desire to learn more, to question, or to explore the worlds of literature, science, and history. All they did was try to rob me of the sense of my own uniqueness and worth, and in the process, nearly killed my urge to inquire. Many of the party members were accustomed to violence as they were from families that had left the South where the lynchings had caused thousands of deaths. Now, there's another quote from Revolutionary Suicide that stood out to me as, you know, recently we watched the movie 13th on Netflix, which I'd highly suggest. And the quote is, During the five years since the party had been formed, it always seemed that time was not measured in days or months or hours but by the movements of comrades and brothers in and out of prison and by the dates of hearings, releases, and trials. Our lives are regulated not by the ordinary tempo of daily events, but by the forced clockwork of the judicial process. Now, my reason for bringing any attention to Huey, and he was not perfect and there is controversy over many of his actions, but the entire initial reason for the creation of the party and a person like him to come to be, in my opinion, was due to continual structural oppression and subjugation and the racist actions of the societal and governmental level. There's a video on YouTube um, where Huey uh, is on the show People Are Talking in 1988 with Ismail Reed and Juwanza Kanjufu. And it's just, yeah, they're discussing racism against black men. I went doing, reading different things about Huey P. I just started listening to different YouTube videos. And that is one uh, that I found probably sometime last year. And I actually often listen to it when I'm working out in the mornings just to keep perspective and check myself as well as to remind myself it's, it's not any different now in 2020 and to be aware of my own personal actions. And I also like to listen to educated individuals deal with difficult conversations and control their thoughts and words amidst emotional reactions. 
Now we're in 1967. The OPHR, which stands for the Olympic Project for Human Rights. This was an American organization established by sociologists Harry Edwards and others, including two Olympians, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. The aim of the organization was to protect against racial segregation in the U.S. and elsewhere, such as South Africa, as well as racism in sports in general. Smith said that the project was about human rights of all humanity, even those who denied us ours. Most members were black athletes or community leaders. Two members, two of the black Olympians, in 1968, Tommy Gold, who won the gold, and John Carlos with the bronze, raised their fists on the podium after the 200-meter race at the Summer Olympics in Mexico City. It's a very famous photo. You'll see the two men with their hands raised. Accompanying them with silver medalist Peter Norman, a white Australian sprinter who also wore an OPHR badge to show his support for the two African Americans. This bold action, this exact action, is clearly stated in the book Shoe Dog, which Diego and I have been reading. And that was spoken about two nights ago when we were bedtime or reading books. And Phil Knight's business partner and former track coach Bill Bowerman was the assistant coach on that Olympic team. That's why he brought it up. So it actually helped begin the conversation of what is happening now. His school, Diego's school that he currently goes to, I'm extremely thankful for, has always taught about equality, prejudice, and racism as something to be aware of and fight for what is right. All right, that brings us to 1991. Rodney King, who actually just died in 2012 after publishing his memoir called The Riot Within, My Journey from Rebellion to Redemption. On March 3rd, 1991, King was violently beaten by LAPD officers during his arrest. A civilian, George Holliday, filmed the incident from his nearby balcony and sent the footage to the local news, KTLA. The footage clearly showed an unarmed king on the ground being beaten and the incident was covered by news media around the world and caused fear. At a press conference, announcing the 14 officers involved would be disciplined and three would face criminal charges. LA Police Chief Darrell Gates said, We believe the officers used excessive force taking him into custody. In our view, we found that officers struck him with batons between 53 and 56 times. No charges were filed against King. On his release, he spoke to reporters from his wheelchair. With his injuries evident, a broken right leg in a cast, his face badly cut and swollen, bruises on his body, and a burn area to his chest where he had been jolted with the 50,000 volt stun gun. He described how he knelt, spread his hands out and tried to move slow as to not make any quote-unquote stupid move. 
as he was being hit across the face by a billy club and shocked. He said he was scared for his life as they drew down on him. Four officers were eventually tried on charges of use of police brutality. Of these, three were acquitted and the jury failed to reach a verdict on one charge for the fourth. Within hours of the acquittals, the 1992 LA riots started and this sparked an outrage with blacks and Latinos over the trial's verdict and related long-standing social issues. The rioting lasted six days with 63 people killed and 2,383 more injured. And it ended only after the California Army National Guard and the U.S. Army and the U.S. Marine Corps provided reinforcements to reestablish control. The federal government prosecuted a separate civil rights case, obtaining grand jury indictments of the four officers for violating of King's civil rights. Their trial in a federal district court ended on April 16, 1993, with two of the officers being found guilty and sentenced to serve prison terms. The other two were acquitted of the charges. Now I brought up that because I was actually 12 years old at the time. I was in Santa Monica visiting my aunt after driving down from Anchorage, Alaska with my two uncles. It was, I believe, my first or second day there. And I clearly remember feeling the deep rumble and then walking outside and watching the National Guard tanks roll down Main Street past rows where we were at. Just at that corner. If you ever go to that corner, there's a crazy clown on a big condo building. And that street, Main Street, is a very quaint situation now. But that day there were just rows of tanks rolling down. Okay, that brings us to 2012. Trayvon Martin. On February 26, 2012, Zimmerman fatally shot 17-year-old African-American high school student Trayvon Martin in the retreat at Twin Lakes Community in Sanford, Florida. Zimmerman was the neighborhood watch coordinator in his gated community. Martin was temporarily staying there and was shot there. The Twin Lakes Neighborhood Watch Program was not registered with the National Neighborhood Watch Program, but was administered by the local police department. Following an earlier call from Zimmerman, police arrived within two minutes of a gunshot during an altercation in which Zimmerman fatally shot Martin, who did not have any weapons. Zimmerman was subsequently taken into custody, treated for head injuries, then questioned for five hours. The police chief said that Zimmerman was released because there was no evidence to refute Zimmerman's claim of having acted in self-defense, and that under Florida's Stand Your Ground statute, the police were prohibited by law from making an arrest. The police chief said that Zimmerman had a right to defend himself with lethal force. As news of the case spread, 
Thousands of protesters across the U.S. called for his arrest and a full investigation. Six weeks after the shooting, amid widespread, intense, and in some cases misleading media coverage, Zimmerman was charged with murder by a special prosecutor appointed by Governor Rick Scott. Zimmerman's trial began on June 10th, 2013 in Sanford. On July 13th, a jury acquitted Zimmerman of the charges of second-degree murder and manslaughter. For three years, the U.S. Department of Justice investigated Zimmerman on civil rights charges. In February 2015, the DOJ concluded that there was not sufficient evidence that Zimmerman intentionally violated the civil rights of Martin, saying that Zimmerman did not meet, that the case did not meet the quote-unquote high standard for a federal hate crime prosecution. And most recently, on December 4th, 2019, this would be last year, Zimmerman sued the Martin family and others involved in a trial for $100 million on grounds of false evidence and abuse of process. Twenty fourteen, Eric Garner. On July seventeenth, twenty fourteen, Eric Garner died in the New York City borough of Staten Island after Daniel Pantaleo, an NYPD officer, put him in a chokehold while arresting him. Video footage of the incident generated widespread national attention and raised questions about the appropriate use of force by law enforcement. Use of force by law. NYPD approached Garner on July 17th on suspicion of selling single cigarettes from packs without tax stamps. After Garner told the police that he was tired of being harassed and that he was not selling cigarettes, they attempted to arrest him. When Pantaleo placed his hands on Garner, Garner refused to cooperate and pulled his arms away. Then Pantaleo put his arms around Garner's neck and wrestled him to the ground. With multiple officers restraining him, Garner repeated the words, I can't breathe, 11 times while lying face down on the sidewalk. After Garner lost consciousness, officers, officers turned him onto his side to ease his breathing. Garner remained lying on the sidewalk for seven minutes while they waited for the ambulance. Garner was pronounced dead at the hospital approximately an hour later. The medical examiner ruled his death a homicide. According to the examiner's definition, homicide is a death caused by intentional actions of another person or persons the use of the term does not necessarily mean that a crime was committed. Specifically, an autopsy indicated that Garner's death resulted from compression on his neck, compression on his chest, his chest and prone positioning during physical restraint by police. On December 3, 2014, the jury decided not to indict Pantaleo. This decision stirred public protests and rallies with charges of police brutality by the protesters. Almost at the end of the month, on December 28th, 
At least 50 demonstrations had been held nationwide in response to the Garner case, while hundreds of demonstrations against general police brutality counted Garner as a focal point. A NYPD disciplinary hearing regarding Pantaleo's treatment of Garner was held in the summer of 2019, five years later. On August 2nd, an administrative judge recommended that Pantaleo's employment be terminated. And Pantaleo was fired on August 19th, 2019. Again, more than five years after Garner's death. Just fired. So now that brings us up to reporter and author Matt Taibbi. And this is from one of his articles. Where did policing go wrong? Crime has been down for decades, but incarceration is still sky high and brutality cases keep tearing the the country apart. Does policing in America need a fundamental rethink? But the Garner story ended up graphically revealing the way modern quote-unquote broken windows policing had evolved to fit the tactics of those centuries of racial enforcement. I learned that vagrancy laws have been replaced in cities like New York with essentially identical offenses like obstructing pedestrian traffic and obstructing government administration. In Staten Island, a borough that to this day remains very segregated, white and black residents alike refer to the Staten Island Expressway that bisects black neighborhoods to the north and white neighborhoods to the south as the Mason-Dixon Line. The young black men who lived in and around Tomskinsville area where Garner was killed, told stories of being stopped and ticketed whenever they crossed into the wrong neighborhoods. The new strategy relies upon extremely high numbers of contacts between police and subject populations who were stopped for every conceivable minor offense, public intoxication, public urination, riding bicycles the wrong way down a sidewalk, refusing to obey police orders, jumping subway turnstiles in a Garner case, selling loose cigarettes. This idea of high engagement policing was born in the mind of a Midwestern academic corrections official named George Kelling. Kelling conducted a number of studies for think tanks like the Police Foundation and eventually co-authored a hugely influential 1982 article in the Atlantic called Broken Windows. Kelling in his research found that while people may not actually be safer, they feel safer when there's less visible disorder in their neighborhoods, such as panhandling, litter, graffiti. Also, research suggested such disorder was incentive to further disorder. As Stanford researcher Philip Zimbardo put it, if a window in a building is broken and left unrepaired, all the rest of the windows will soon be broken. Broken windows revolutionized policing, changing it from a business of fighting crime to what Kelling described as order maintenance. Then today, this is now, June 4th, 2020, the Justice Department reportedly gave the DEA the temporary power to conduct covert surveillance on protesters for the protests going on right now. We'll get to that. 
potentially by collecting data from cell phones. The DA could also apparently interview, search, and arrest protesters, which could add to the more 9,300 who've already been arrested last week. This comes as more than half of the U.S. states have deployed the National Guard, a measure President Trump has encouraged to instate that law and order. Not everybody's on board. The Kelling Revolution, back to the article, was credited with early successes, like the cleaning up of the New York City subway. Soon, broken window strategies, sometimes euphemistically called community policing, was the norm in big cities. Mass stops and arrests led to amazing numbers, like Baltimore under Mayor Martin O'Malley, who arrested 100,000 people in 2004 alone, or the city of Chicago stopping 250,000 people in 2014, a stop rate four times higher than New York in the peak years of stop and frisk. This is why, even as rates of both Violent crime and property crime have been decreasing steadily since the early 90s. Rates of incarceration have been exploding in the other direction. For most of the 20th century, the rate of incarceration in America was roughly 110 for every 100,000 people. As of last year, the number was 655. And although the numbers have dipped slightly in recent years, down from a high of about 760 in 2013, the quantity of prisoners in America remains absurdly high. Such aggressive military-style policing would not be tolerated by voters if it were taking place everywhere. It's popular and continues to be embraced by politicians in both parties because it's only happening in those neighborhoods, or as Mike Bloomberg once put it, where the crime is. Even during the COVID-19 crisis, which is now, 80% of the summons for social distancing violations are given out to blacks and Hispanics. Does anyone really think that minorities account for the massive percentage of those violations? Do they think black people really commit almost four times as many marijuana offenses as white people? Because they're constantly throwing these people against walls, writing them nuisance tickets, and violating their space with humiliating searches. For example, New York in 2010 paid $33 million to a staggering 100,000 people who were strip-searched after misdemeanor charges. As a result, many embrace a warrior ethos that teaches them to view themselves as under constant threat. This is why you see so many knees on heads and necks, guns drawn on unarmed motorists, chokeholds by the thousand, and patterns of massive overkill everywhere. 41 shots were fired at Amadou Diallo, 50 at Sean Bell, 137 at Timothy Russell and Melissa Williams in Cleveland, and homicides over $20 or a loose cigarette. Philandro Castile shot seven times by a police officer who leapt back firing in panic like he was being attacked by Freddy Krueger instead of a calm, compliant, educated young man. The current protests are likely to inspire politicians to think the other way, but it's probably time to reconsider what we're trying to accomplish with this kind of policing. In upscale white America, drug use is effectively decriminalized, and Terry stops, strip searches, and quality of life arrests are unknowns. The country isn't going to heal as long as everyone else gets a knee in the neck.
Now we're in 2015. Now I'm just going to read off of a chart cited by the website mappingpoliceviolence.org in 2014. But this is, this is reporting 2015 numbers. Unarmed black people were killed at five times the rate of unarmed whites in 2015. Only 13 of the 104 cases in 2015 where an unarmed black person was killed by police resulted in officers being charged with the crime. Four of these cases have ended in a mistrial or charges against the officers being dropped and four cases are still awaiting trial or have a trial underway. Only four cases have resulted in convictions of officers involved with the fifth case resulting in the officer pleading guilty. Of the four cases where the officers involved have been convicted and sentenced, none were sentenced to more than four years in prison. Only one of the two officers convicted for their involvement, and for example, Matthew Ajabade's death, received jail time. He was sentenced to one year in jail and allowed to serve this time exclusively on weekends. The officer who killed Patterson Brower was sentenced to only three months. Deputy Bates, who killed Eric Harris, was sentenced to years in prison, and Officer Cobb, who killed William Chapman, was sentenced to two and a half years in prison. Officer Slager, who killed Walter Scott and pled guilty, pled guilty, has yet to be sentenced. Okay. In the same year, a book written by Tanahasi Coates called Between the World and Me. Now, I listened to this audiobook several times in my car for weeks straight last year. Back and forth to work. I love the idea of a long letter to his son, which if any of you have listened to my podcast before, it's a big part of who I am and what I often write to leave for my son and my daughter. I was also, I was given the audiobook by a neighbor and he said it is a must listen and for me to keep it as long as I wanted to absorb it. It's a powerful book for any father most certainly a white father who can't relate, which is me. It was a quite awakening as I drove home from downtown to my Austin suburbs to exactly the place Coates clearly describes as, quote, the dream. And he writes, he calls it the dream because it is exclusionary fantasy for white people who are enabled by yet largely ignorant of their history of privilege and suppression, to become conscious of their gains from slavery, segregation, and voter suppression would shatter that dream. The book is written as a letter to the author's teenage son about the feelings, symbolism, and realities associated with being black in the United States. Coates recapitulates American history and explains to his son the racist violence that has been woven into American culture. Coates draws from an unabridged 
Actually, he draws from an abridged autobiographical account of his youth in Baltimore, detailing the ways in which institutions like the school, the police, and even the streets discipline endanger and threaten to disembody black men and women. The book ends with the story about Mabel Jones, the daughter of a sharecropper who worked and rose in social class to give her children comfortable lives, including private schools and European trips. Her son, Coates' college friend, Prince Carmen Jones Jr., was mistakenly tracked and killed by a policeman. Coates uses his friend's story to argue that racism and related tragedy affects black people of means as well. Okay, 2020. Ahmaud Aubrey. Arbery. On February 23rd, 2020, Ahmad Marquez Arbery, an unarmed 25-year-old African-American man, was fatally shot near Brunswick in Glen County, Georgia, while jogging on Holmes Road just before entering its intersection with Satia Drive in the Satia Shores neighborhood. Arbery had been pursued and confronted by two white residents, Travis McMichael and his father Gregory, who were armed and driving a pickup truck. It was recorded on video by a third resident, William Roddy Bryan, who was following Arbery in a second vehicle. The Glen County Police Department said the Brunswick District Attorney's Office advised them on February 23rd to make no arrests, while the Brunswick District Attorney's Office denied that such advice was given to the GCPD by either Brunswick or her AD attorneys. On February 24th, Waycross Judicial Circuit District Attorney George Barnhill, who had not been assigned to the case, advised that the GCPD, that no arrest should be made. Barnhill officially took the case over on February 27th. Later on April 2nd, Barnhill again advised the GCPD to make no arrest while announcing his intention to recuse from the case due to connections between McMichael and his son. Barnhill requested recusal on April 7th. Atlantic Judicial Circuit District Attorney Tom Durden was appointed to the case on April 13th. At the behest of Gregory McMichael, a local attorney provided a copy of the video of the shooting to a local radio station, WGIG, who put it on the station's website on May 5th. The video went viral, also got posted on YouTube and Twitter, and within hours, Durden said a grand jury would decide whether charges would be brought and accepted an offer from Governor Brian Kemp to have the Georgia Bureau of Investigation investigate. On May 7th, the GBI arrested McMichaels and charged him with felony murder and aggravated assault. Brian was arrested and charged with felony, mur felony murder and attempted false imprisonment. The fact that McMichaels... 
that both the McMichaels were not arrested until 74 days later, only after the video went viral, sparked a lot of controversy and debates on racial profiling, profiling in America. And now, 2020, George Floyd. Now, I know this is current news right now, and even Ahmad's story is recent, but this podcast will live on indefinitely. So, for those listening in the future, I'm going to read the details. Today on TV was the memorial for George Floyd, which I watch with the kids. I'm just going to read again. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, died in Minneapolis, Minnesota after Derek Chauvin, Chauvin, I think it's Chauvin, I'll say Chauvin, a white police officer, pressed his knee to Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes. Floyd was handcuffed face down on the ground, while three other officers further restrained Floyd and prevented onlookers from intervening. During the last three minutes, Floyd was motionless and no pulse could be detected. An ambulance was called at the scene. Floyd had gone into full cardiac arrest and was pronounced dead at a nearby hospital. Floyd was being arrested on the suspicion of passing a counterfeit $20 bill at the store. Police said Floyd physically resisted arrest, and some media organization commented that security camera nearby business did not show Floyd resisting. The criminal complaint stated that, based on body camera footage, Floyd repeatedly said he could not breathe while standing outside the police car, resisted getting in the car, and intentionally fell down. He went to the ground, face down, and after Chauvin placed his knee, Floyd repeatedly said, I can't breathe. Mama, and please. Several bystanders took videos, all of which were widely circulated and broadcast. Now, knee-to-neck restraints are allowed in Minnesota under certain circumstances, and Chauvin's usage of the technique has been widely criticized by law enforcement experts as excessive. At two points, the police officer that was holding Floyd's legs asked to roll Floyd on his side. All four officers were fired the next day. Two autopsies determined the manner of Floyd's death to be a homicide. The FBI is conducting a federal civil rights investigation at the request of the Minneapolis Police Department. The Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension is also investigating. On May 29th, Chauvin was charged with third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter for Floyd's death, with Hennepin County Attorney Michael O. Freeman saying he anticipated that charges would be brought against the other three officers. After Floyd's death, demonstrations and protests against racism and police brutality were held globally despite the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and the movement and gathering restrictions put in place by governments to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. 
Protests in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area were initially peaceful on May 26th and became violent as a police precinct and two stores were set on fire and many stores were looted and damaged. Some of the demonstrators fought with police who in return fired tear gas and rubber bullets. Additional protests developed in over 400 cities throughout all 50 American states and internationally. So the current update right now is that all four police officers involved in his death are now facing criminal charges. Until now, the only one charged was Derek Chauvin, the officer who pinned Floyd down with his neck, with his knee on his neck. Yesterday, Minnesota's AG announced he's facing second degree murder charges, updated from third degree charges, which carry a shorter sentence. The three other officers, Thomas Lane, Tutau, and J. Alexander King, were charged with aiding and abetting murder. But recent news could escalate tensions. Okay. So now, let me say, so I'm taking the time to read through these stories because many people are hearing the names mentioned in the news or social media, and hopefully they know them already, but the reality is many don't. And I feel it is important to hear the specific details to truly grasp the depth Okay, now we're going to segue into a different oppression. So, recently, you know, last year, this year, you know, I often I listen to two doctors, which I speak of often, and they covered the topic of food segregation in depth, which I was unaware. Health is a huge determinant for many of my personal lifestyle choices and knowledge about even further discrimination needs to be shared. So the first I'll read is from Chris Kresser. And this is just straight from one of his emails that came earlier this week. One of the biggest misconceptions about health is that it is purely an individual choice. It's true that each of us bears responsibility for the actions we take on a daily basis. And these actions can either promote or detract from our health and well-being. But it's also true that our health is also determined by our environment and the context in which we live. These quote-unquote social determinants of health include things like air and water quality, access to healthy food, exposure to environmental toxins, socioeconomic status, education, neighborhood, physical environment, and race. As all of the civil, unre civil unrest related to the killing of George Floyd by police intensifies, it's worth reflecting on the inescapable yet often hidden connection between health and social inequality. A large body of evidence has shown that social determinants of health have a powerful influence on us as individuals. For example, despite the obvious progress we've made in the last few decades, the U.S. remains a racially segregated country. Wealthy areas have 
three times the number of supermarkets than poor areas, and white neighborhoods have four times as many supermarkets as black neighborhoods. People living in poor neighborhoods breathe more hazardous air particles than people in wealthier neighborhoods. Children born to parents that didn't complete high school are less likely to have access to sidewalks, parks, or playgrounds, and are more likely to be obese than kids born to parents with more education. Chronic stress caused by poverty, racial discrimination, lack of social support, and other factors has strong negative effects not only across an individual lifespan, but also across successive generations. Coronavirus has also exposed how systematic inequality impacts individual health. COVID-19 has had a disproportionate impact on African-American communities across the U.S. According to the CDC, almost a third of coronavirus, coronavirus infections have affected black Americans, though blacks only represent 13% of the U.S. population. The social, the social determinants of health I mentioned above are almost certainly the primary driver of this imbalance. African Americans are more likely to live in poverty, to have limited access to health care, to live in stressful conditions, and as a result, to have the pre-existing conditions like hypertension and diabetes that increase the severity of COVID-19. So what does this have to do with the civil unrest that is sweeping across America right now? Everything. The killing of George Floyd and other recent similar tragedies have, again, made the systematic racism and oppression in the U.S. impossible for anyone to ignore. But for black Americans, it has always been an unavoidable, unavoidable reality of daily life. Over the past few years, scientists have been studying how the social experience of race translates directly into disparities in health. They believe that chronic stress may be one of the key ways that racism contributes to these disparities. For example, one study of black women found that stress from frequent racist encounters is associated with chronic low-grade inflammation. And as you know, inflammation is the root of most modern chronic diseases like diabetes and heart disease, which black people suffer disproportionately from. Other studies have found similar results, and one study even found the expectation of a racist encounter increased stress and stress-related emotions. All of this research points to a fundamental truth. It's impossible to separate the social and racial issues that are demanding our attention from our individual health and well-being. It's all connected. We're all connected. And for these reasons, we're in this together. In health, Chris. Okay. Went all the way backwards. So now we're going to go with Dr. Mark Hyman. And this is a letter, or uh, actually a transcript from a speech he gave in 2018. And this is in regards to food deserts and silent oppression which he posted in December 2019. On April 4th, 
2018, the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's death at Riverside Church in Harlem, the church where 51 years ago to the day MLK Jr. spoke out about the injustice of the Vietnam War, he gave this speech. We're talking about Mark. As a doctor, I took an oath to do no harm. Today, I stand here because there is harm being done to millions and I must speak out. We know all too well the visible forms of racism in our society. We know the inequities in income and opportunity. We know the brutal violence and discrimination of the police. We know the shooting of black children. We know the name Tamir Rice. We know the name of unarmed black men shot in the back. We know the name of Stephon Clark. But we don't know the names of millions of black Americans killed every year by an invisible form of racism, a silent and insidious injustice. Most African Americans are killed by bad food than anything else. The science is clear. Our processed, sugary, starchy diet is the single biggest cause of disease and death, type 2 diabetes, obesity, heart disease, stroke, high blood pressure, cancer, and even dementia. Our food system is the deadliest weapon used against the poor and minorities, keeping them poor, sick and fat, hijacking their brains and biology. What if I told you that the food industry specifically targets the poor and minorities? Research shows that African-American kids drink twice as much soda as white kids. What if I told you that sugar and processed foods were more addictive than cocaine? That the food industry has hijacked our brain chemistry, our taste buds, our metabolism, our bodies, and our minds? We know that your zip code is more important than your genetic code in determining your risk of disease and death. One in 10 of our kids has ADD ADD medication. And the science shows the junk our kids eat is a big part of the cause. The food industry spends $10 billion on marketing junk food to our kids every year. The average kid sees 6,000 ads for junk food and soda on TV and even more through social media. And minorities and African American kids are targeted more aggressively. These companies are junk food pushers. But it doesn't have to be that way. Charter schools in the poorest, most disadvantaged communities of color who feed the kids two to three healthy meals a day find that the kids are more likely to go to college than to jail. And we incarcerate black Americans at five times the rate of white Americans. And much of that is a result of racial targeting by the police and judicial system. I was part of a documentary called Fed Up, a movie about how our food system makes us fat and sick with addictive, sugary, starchy products. I met with Bernice King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter, and she explained to me that nonviolence also includes nonviolence to ourselves. And she was excited about showing Fed Up at the King Center in Atlanta. But a few days later, I got a call that we couldn't show the film. Why? I asked. The answer was Coca-Cola funds the King Center. The dean of Spelman College in Atlanta told me that 50% of the entering class of black freshman women had a chronic disease. 
type 2 diabetes, hypertension, or obesity. I asked her why there were Coke machines and fountains all over campus. It's because Coca-Cola is one of our biggest donors to the college. The NAACP has received $2.1 million from Coca-Cola alone since 1986, and Coca-Cola has also funded the Hispanic Federation. Is it any surprise the NAACP and Hispanic groups oppose a soda tax? We cannot stand for this. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. We can no longer be silent about this. If you are black, you are 80% more likely to be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. You're over 4 times as likely to have kidney failure, and you're three and a half times as likely to suffer amputations as whites. Yet we remain silent about the role of the food system killing millions of Americans. They tell us it's all personal choice. Nonsense. Big food corrupts public health and advocacy groups. They fund hunger groups like the Food Research and Action Center and Feeding America. These hunger groups strongly oppose limiting the use of food stamps or SNAP to buy soda, despite the fact the single biggest item of our food stamp bill, which is over $7 billion a year, is soda, which means 20 billion servings a year to the poor. Soda and sugar-sweetened beverages are the single biggest cause of obesity and type 2 diabetes. Our bodies, our health, our children, our communities have been taken from us. It is time we take them back. It is time we say no to big food and institutionalize food injustice that is causing this slow motion genocide. We need to educate our kids, ourselves, and our communities. We have to do this together. In fact, we can only do this together. Black lives matter. Yes. And black health matters too. The harm done by the global food industry affects nearly all humans on the planet in the same way. This must stop. We can stop it with our fork, the most powerful weapon we have to change our health, our communities, our economy, and the health of the planet. Wishing you health and happiness, Dr. Mark Hyman. Okay. Now we've come to the part where this is just my personal thoughts. I will read. Help me keep it together. Okay. Our world is abundant in all things, good and bad evil and pure, right and wrong, familiar and foreign, atrocities and heroism. Our limited time and attention are the most fought over commodity in all our lives. I am glad justice can be brought to those that deserve it. I am elated that heroes can be praised. I personally 
openly do not like headline, clickbait, short, unresearched sentences to be brought to my attention as sources of information. I don't often keep up to date on current events generally. All of us have limited time and attention. I am typically an open hater to the constant Facebook news feed addicts. To me, the word feed has a negative connotation. It is not called a ticker or the update or trending news. It is called a feed. Most humans are hungry for information they don't have to work for or research or explore their own interests deeply enough to open a book or even listen to one. That is okay. It is just not my personal approach and I don't mean to offend anyone as I am here sharing information on this podcast that I hope helps others in hopes they discover and follow their ideas that get sparked. I often only share portions of books and dive into sharing my thoughts on sections that I have chosen. So I am also guilty of not being an audiobook reader, but more of a reflection session. Uh, for me, I like to read it better than listen to it. It's a mix up, but as long as you're learning. Am I, you know, I didn't learn for a long time. And I guess I'm trying to make up for that. We pride ourselves as Americans for embracing differences, but more often than not, we embrace anyone like ourselves. It's more comfortable in our echo chambers, our cognitive biases, and we know that to be true. I'm aware of this in myself, and I strive to not fall prey to it, but it is an ongoing mission. I will continue to explore my thoughts and information, and I believe we can all grow from counter-arguments instead of muting them by default. I learned very much during the research for this episode, and I'm grateful for having done so. I am sorry for anyone that is in suffrage or pain far beyond my white privileged understanding, and I am sorry for anyone enduring a more difficult reality than mine especially if it is race or prejudice driven. For those that suffer violence based on the evils of the simplest minds that act on racism as a reason for their unforgivable actions. Simultaneously, I have appreciation for our police and military. I'll explain. Like Eminem's new song, Stepfather, mine also should have been called Lithium Ion for how many battery charges he had against my mother. Him and the other previous boyfriends that rained down the same fury. I often lived in intimidating fear as a young, innocent child. The only brave people that came to confront these tyrants and physically put hands on them were the officers who may as well have had on Superman suits. They took these evil demons away. They put them in their place. And most officers and soldiers are those people. So now, after so many years of police brutality being a reality in this country, and as an adult, waking up to this fact over the years is heartbreaking. I still look at police with those childish eyes 
tearing up as I imagined how they heroically saved and protected me from my mom over and over again. And it's hard for me to face the sad truth of the many that have and continue to abuse this power. So no, I don't hate law enforcement as a whole. I do hate racist murderers, whatever their job may be. And when they're found out, they should have all the ramifications and justice they deserve. And to all those I have read about today, you will not be forgotten. Duncan Trussell often repeats the phrase, water the part of the garden you can touch. So I'm not sure if what I'm ever doing is valuable, worthy, thought-provoking, or helpful. I like to think it is, but I would be egotistical to assume so. My focus is here, in my house, raising two children to be open-minded, understanding, curious, questioning thinkers who appreciate all people. Children who will become adults that never judge on the ridiculous and shallow means of skin color. Who I hope will become empathetic adults who can look at situations and people with love and careful thoughts and who respect themselves and others. Our need as parents is this, to help build a better world. And I realize I must do my part. See something, say something, do something. There is power in all our actions. Right now, today, amidst senseless racist murders, a global pandemic, and a potential debt jubilee due to our amassed societal debt load, tearing apart families and putting economic classes at odds, it is truly a tough and confusing time. Today has confronted all of us, making us look directly into the mirror and ask, who are you really? Who am I really? What is my place? What is my worth? Do I love enough? Am I angry enough? <sighs> so in all honesty, I was hesitant to share anything, which was wrong. But here was my honest failed thought. That if I did do this, meaning this episode, that I was only doing it because of what's going on. And that is absolutely true. But isn't that the change that needs to happen? White America needs to wake up and pay attention and share the tragedies so that they can be fought against once learned. Right? And if I do speak up, I'm taking the act, the action that was intended potentially only to be met with anger for doing so. Again, that was my selfish thought. There is always more to be learned by listening to one another. And I hope I am exemplifying something positive and worthwhile. If I'm not 
I'm willing to change. I owe this entire podcast to a close dear friend who put me in my place, who acknowledged my first thoughts and made me realize my shortfalls and blind spots. I was honest and he was honest in return. By helping me see where I was absolutely wrong, we both grew, but mostly me. Without honest friends who help change one another for the better, we will never step forward. Today is that day for me. To the great Bond too, I love you and thank you for guiding me as you always have since befriending me in 2001. You have never ceased to be a big brother, a teacher, and an unbelievably hardworking force of nature and friend. I would also like to thank you, Charles, for also urging me to speak up. And it is your strong voice asking me as well that gave me courage to do so. And to all those listening, may you also have someone in your life that can steer you towards the light, towards the path where you find your best self. Be healthy, y'all.